Well, the 36th Psalm, Psalm 36. But before I do that, on a related and unrelated note, kind of a dual purpose of my opening statements here, we would do well as a church and as the people of God to constantly remind ourselves that we are living in exile. And what I mean by that is ever since the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, human beings have lost their home, uh, the home that they had uh, that was with God and in God and in union and communion with God. And ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and the ruin that came upon creation and upon the human race, we have been living outside of paradise. And the Bible describes the people of God in 1 Peter as pilgrims, sojourners, and strangers in a foreign land. And what that means is, I say all that to tell you that the Bible and the old hymn tells us that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't be at home in this world anymore. And in moments where things, it seems that wickedness and sin and evil prevail and win the day, we have to remind ourselves that this world is not our home. And as the hymn that we just sang reminded us, is that we are marching to the beautiful city of Zion. And that is the new Jerusalem. That's the new heavens and the new earth that come down well, wherein dwells righteousness and God will once and for all be the King of kings and Lord of lords and there will be no sin, there will be no death, there will be no suffering, there will be no war, there will be no turmoil, there will be no conflict. And that is the destiny of the people of God. But until then, we live in the now, and we long for the not yet. And if you are disappointed in the way that things have gone politically in the last week, or your expectations and hopes seem to have been dashed into pieces, remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is still reigning and ruling on the throne. You know, it's also uh, telling a little bit because God's people in other parts of the world are just used to their government and their sort of political system not being anything remotely like the one that we've always known has been. And I think that as the days go on, God is going to continue to teach his people in the United States that he is their true king and that he desires to reign and he desires to lead and guide and sustain his people as we wander through the wilderness of this life. So I don't know what that means to you. Some people may be happy about what's going on. Some people may not be happy about what's going on. But I can tell you this much. Either way, Jesus Christ is king. Psalm number 36. And as Ryan read... you're introduced immediately to a group of people 
whom David calls the wicked. It's another way of saying faithless, people who are faithless. So I want to talk about this and what this means. I want to talk about uh, the great literary feature of Psalm 36. Psalm number 36 is directly connected to two other key portions of the Bible. Psalm 36 is connected to Psalm 1. It's also connected to Romans chapter 3. The latter mention in the New Testament we'll discuss as we move on. But the main difference between Psalm 1 and Psalm 36 is that Psalm 1 contrasts the wicked with the righteous. But Psalm 36 contrasts the wicked with the Lord. In other words, Psalm 36 contrasts the attributes of the wicked over against the attributes of God. In Psalm 36, we have two realities being put on display for us. On the one hand, you have a group of people whom the psalmist says are characterized by rebellion against God, faithlessness. They leave God out of their decisions. They ignore God's expectations of them. They are wayward. They are deceitful. They are secretly scheming. And by thinking that they will get away with their lifestyle and their sinful habits, and they will not ultimately have to give an account to God. That's the wicked on the one hand. But then over on the other hand, you have the Lord. And the Lord in this great 36th Psalm is characterized by commitment, by truthfulness, by steadfast love, by faithfulness, by life and light, and by the delivering and saving of his people. And so here we have these two contrasting realities being put before us in the 36th Psalm. And by the way, these are the same contrasting realities that you and I face at every moment of every day as we live this side of eternity. On the one hand, you have Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is being ignored by the wicked. But God will not be ignored forever. Our thrust statement this morning is, when it seems as if the wicked will win the day, Psalm 36 invites us to pray and to see with the eyes of faith the reality of human wickedness and rejection of God and that, that, that will now be and in the future eclipsed by the greater reality of God's steadfast love, life, and light, which will ultimately take the final prize. I'll say that again for you. When it seems as if the wicked will win the day, Psalm 36 invites us to pray and see with the eyes of faith the dual realities of human wickedness and rejection of God and how that, that will now and in the future be eclipsed by the greater reality of God's steadfast love, life, and light, which will ultimately take the final prize. Let us study the stark contrast between the attributes of faithless humanity and our faithful God. I have, let's see here, one, two points for you this morning. The first one is the attributes of the wicked, verses 1 through 4. And the second one is the attributes of God, verses 5 through 9. And at the end, we will have an application 
and with applications all throughout our study this morning. What is the significance of Psalm 36? Well, Psalm 36 is quoted by Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 18. In Romans chapter 3, and really all throughout the book of Romans, what Paul does is he uses passages like Psalm 36 and verse 1 to show that human beings suppress the truth about who God is and what God has done in the world, and they suppress the truth of God because of the wickedness and the sinfulness and the evilness of their fallen human hearts. Human beings are wicked because they have transgressed and broken the holy law of God just like Adam and Eve. And because Adam and Eve, the original parents of the human race, have transgressed, the word transgressed means to rebel against. They have rebelled against God himself. They have broken God's law. And therefore, what has now happened is the, the law-breaking nature of humanity has been passed down to every single one of us, and we are born sinners into this world. And that's exactly how the 36th Psalm begins. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. It is a rebellious nature. The fundamental and foundational problem with the human race is that we are born rebels. Uh, the great C.S. Lewis used to illustrate it by saying that we are all born coming out of our mother's womb wearing fatigues and with war paint on our face in a war against God. And I think that that is aptly true, and I think that that's what Paul is identifying in this great and uh, wonderful verse in Romans chapter 3 and verse 18. Now, this transgressing nature, this rebellious nature, has now passed to all humanity, and it is this transgressing nature that has caused human beings to reject the light of truth concerning who God is and what God is doing. And because they have been born as rebels and they are born, we are born rejecting the light of God's truth, what that does is that sets all humanity on a downward degenerative trajectory. The trajectory of the life of the wicked, the faithless, the unsaved, the unredeemed, is a degenerative, downward spiraling staircase that leads to all sorts of horrible things, sin and sinfulness. David begins his description of the wicked in verse number 1. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And then look, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Because they're in rebellion against God, because they reject the light of God, they do not fear God. And what fear means is they do not reverence God. They're not in awe of God. They don't bestow upon God the worship, praise, love, and adoration which God deserves for being a gracious and kind creator and sustainer of our world. 
In other words, what these do is that they deny that God will hold them accountable for their evil actions. That's another of the elements that David's identifying. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't believe that they're going to stand before the Lord one day in judgment. They don't want to, and so what they do in the second verse, notice what they do. They flatter themselves. The word flatter means deceive, self-deception. So this is the way I have it in my notes. The denial of God, the rejection of God, the rebellion against God has a four-step downward decline into darkness in the first four verses of Psalm number 36. Number one. Remember, folks, it's not my word this morning. It's just what the Bible says. <laughs> okay? This is important. Number one, having denied God will hold them accountable for their sins. The wicked become the center of their own world and are self-deceived. That's what the word, the phrase, for he flatters himself with his own eyes or in his own eyes. They're self-deceptive. I want to talk about this. I have several applications for how the faithless of the world, the unsaved, flatter themselves. They flatter themselves in the hope that there's not an afterlife or an eternity. They don't want, they self-deceive. They're self-centered. The world revolves around them. They are the center of their own universe. And because of that, they don't want to have to believe that one day there is coming a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, a day of justice, a day of retribution, where God in his holiness will judge all of humanity, every single man, woman, boy, and child, no matter the color of their skin, no matter how wealthy or poor they were, God will judge every single human being according to their works, Revelation chapter number 20. The great white throne judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want, they self-deceive because there's no fear of God before their eyes because transgression, rebellion is constantly speaking to them in their heart. What they do is they flatter themselves. They self-deceive. They don't want to believe that there's an afterlife in eternity, an everlasting heaven or hell. And so they deny the existence of an afterlife because they have denied the sovereignty and the grace and the light of God, the Creator. Secondly, self-flattery, it's afterlife self-flattery, self-flattery, excuse me. Secondly, it's an 11th hour kind of self-flattery. Don't wait until the 11th hour to repent of your sins and exercise faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Many people are self-deceived, they're self-flattered, thinking that they'll be able to wait until the final moment to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they're self-flattering, they're deceptive to their own self. They want to live their life, they want to sow their wild oats. They want to do what they want to do. They want to wear the crown. They want to be the king or queen of their own life. They don't want to submit themselves to the Lord. And so it's an 11th hour kind of self-flattery where they think they'll be able to wait until the final moment on their deathbed to repent and they're dead wrong. Thirdly, it's a moralistic kind of self-flattery. 
Many think that, they, and many try to flatter themselves, they deceive themselves by thinking that they will lead a moral life, do good works, and that somehow that will save them. And they're also dead wrong. It's not, it's not a moralistic gospel. It's not about how good you are. It's not about the life that you live. It's about the blood and the suffering and the resurrection of a Savior and a Lord named Jesus Christ who was the Son of God. It's faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, through the Scriptures alone, to God be the glory alone. Your moralistic self-flattery will not enter you into the kingdom of heaven. It never has and it never will. And these that are self-deceived and self-flattering, these who have rejected the light of God, there's no fear of God before their eyes, transgression speaks to them in their heart, all that they know is rebellion, all that they care about is sin. A false conversion self-flattery, number four. Thinking that there may be Christian. Thinking that they know the Lord. Thinking that because of maybe praying a prayer or thinking that maybe because of church attendance or because of their moralism as we just spoke of in a moment ago. Thinking that because of that, somehow that they're converted, that they've been born again. And they're deceiving themselves. It's a false conversion kind of self-flattery, self-deception. Being born into a Christian home does not make you a Christian. The regenerating, saving grace of God makes you a Christian. The blood of a Savior and a Lord shed for you on Calvary. That's what makes you a Christian. Faith in Him and a changed life. I always enjoy to overhear the conversations of my children. Because <laughs> my Bible teaching and theology is really the only stuff that they get. <laughs> so, you know, if you ever wonder how bad you're messing up, just listen to how your kids think. And uh, apparently there was a conversation that took place amongst the older ones. And it was, how do you become a Christian? And there was mention of baptism, which is, there's some truth to that. There's definitely Christians become baptized. Well, how do you know that you're a Christian, one asked. And then another answered, if you serve God. Isn't that interesting? They don't think it's a prayer that saves them. They don't think it's a decision that saves them, although that's all important and that's part of it. It's a changed life that saves you. The Bible said, Jesus, in his last words in Matthew chapter 28 to his disciples, he said, go ye therefore into all the world and get people to make decisions. Well, wait a minute. That's the New Joel version. No, he said, make disciples. It's very possible for someone to make a decision about Jesus, but not be a disciple of Jesus. And boy, doesn't the book of Matthew answer that question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It's a false conversion kind of self-deception and self-flattery. It's an atheistic self-flattery. An, athe an atheistic self-flattery. Perhaps the greatest deception of all is when someone denies either the existence of or the providence of God. You remember, there's two kinds of atheism. There's a denial of God's existence and there's a denial of God's providence. 
Oh, well, God's the big guy in the sky. He's the man upstairs. He's sitting out on his front porch with a big long white beard and smoking a corncob pipe in a rocking chair. That's, what God, that's who God is, somewhere way off in the cosmos in some far off place. Folks, that's not who God is. He is the Lord. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the master. He is the teacher. He is the savior of all men and women. And he is holding us accountable. He lays claim to our lives. And he's doing that because he can. He answers to no one. He is the self-existent, eternal one, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, He is the beginning, he is the ending, the alpha, the omega. He is accountable only to one, and that's his own self. And we are his creatures. He makes the rules, not us. Amen. When I was growing up, you know, I grew up in a quite a bit different environment than probably what most of y'all grew up in. And... Uh, my mom and dad, although they did not live for the Lord, they still you know, tried to steer me the right way as best as they could. And when I got to be a teenager, I was a handful and a half. And uh, my folks used to tell me, they would tell me, they'd say, son, the world doesn't revolve around you. And you know what? That's always stuck with me because some years later, I actually came to see that the world did not revolve around me. The world revolves around God. I revolve around God. You revolve around God. This church, all the people in here in this moment, this nation, <laughs> whether they like it or not, whether they admit it or not, whether they accept it or deny it or something in between, they are accountable to him. All of them. Having lost a frame of reference for what is good or evil, the wicked are unable to detect or hate their sin. Think about this. Having lost a frame of reference for what is the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, the wicked are unable to detect or hate their sin. Look at what he said in verse number two. That his iniquity, see in the second part, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. They're so dark. They have rebelled. They have rejected. They have suppressed, Paul said, the knowledge and the light of God. <clears throat> and they've done that to the degree now that they cannot even detect their sin or someone else's sin. It's like the Jews became in the book of Judges. The Bible said in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Everyone wants to make their own rules. Everyone wants to drive their own bus. Everyone wants to call their own shots. We live, as we're going to speak in, later on in the sermon, we live in the age of American individualism. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. You ain't my boss. Well, God is everyone's boss. <laughs> and you and I... Great and small, young and old, rich and poor, black, white, and anything in between, we will all stand before him one day, and we must give an account for what we have done and how we have lived. 
And if you think and if I think we're going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I did everything I was supposed to do. I crossed all my uh, T's. I dotted all my I's. I did all the right stuff, didn't do any of the wrong stuff. And based upon what you did, if you think that God is going to let you into heaven, you're wrong. And if you made it that far, you would already have known that. The great Arno Gabelin, Bible commentator of yesteryear, he says in this vein, quote, loving darkness more than light, the wicked calls evil good and good evil and is self-righteous and has an excuse for everything. There will be no excuses on judgment day and there's no excuses this day. It's bad enough to be able to recognize sin and be repulsed by it. That's a gift that Christians have. We recognize, we have, we have a moral compass. It's called scripture, the law of God. We're able to make a discernment between what is sinful and what is holy. But see, the evil, the wicked, the faithless who have suppressed the knowledge of God, have transgressed against the law of God, they have lost their moral compass. They themselves are a moral compass. They are not accountable to a higher power. They themselves are the higher power. They think they call the shots and make the rules and decide what is good and evil. And what happens when we do that, when we suppress the knowledge of God, when we brush the law of God off the table, we become the arbiters of truth. And folks, I'm telling you, that is a very dangerous place to be. There is a higher standard and a holy standard, and it's the Bible. It's God himself. It's bad enough to be able to, be, to recognize sin and be repulsed by our sin. But these wicked, they have lost the ability to detect sin. Think about that. Think about losing the ability to distinguish between sin and righteousness. This is the state of the unsaved. There comes a time when the lights don't even come on anymore. The wicked become so calloused and hardened in their sin that there's a point of no return. Reprobation is the word. Ineligible for salvation. Think about that. Think about someone sinning to the degree that they become ineligible, ineligible excuse me, to be redeemed. Paul says the final point in this vein is when someone calls evil good and good evil. That is to say, not only practicing sin themselves, but approving of those who practice sin. We'll read you Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. Listen. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is a damning revelation. Literally. Thirdly, having become self-deceived and losing the ability to detect sin, the wicked are now unable to speak God's truth or do good. Look at what the Bible said in Psalm 36 and verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. 
This transgressing, rebelling sin nature in the heart, which causes people to have no fear of God before their eyes, then further compounds us into deeper, in, deeper into our sin. And what it does is the heart that David says, transgression speaks to the wicked in his heart, deeply in his heart. Now in verse 3, it's not just the heart that's affected by sin. It's now the outward life, the actions. It's inward and outward corruption. There is no fear of God before their eyes, he says in verse 1. That's a big problem. Because this is the exact opposite of, of the wise man in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. Listen to Proverbs 9 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge and of the Holy One is understanding. Why is our culture in such a dearth of wisdom and knowledge? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. They are their own gods. I'm so glad to be in church this morning. Thank God for it. Aren't you glad, folks, that you've got the Bible? I mean, what would you do without it? It saved my life. Somebody said, Brother Joel, why, why do you like the Bible so much? Well, it saved my life. <laughs> Something saved your life, folks. You'd be appreciative of it. It helps me. It helps you, doesn't it? Helps us make sense of what's going on around us and even in us, as we'll see in a moment. Fourthly, absent of true knowledge, the wicked become so abandoned to evil, they plot their sins day and night and have completely committed themselves to an evil way of life. This is the final step. There's no going back. They said their final no to God. Verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. Think about someone just plotting mischief and evil as they lay in bed. How they're going to deceive and be deceived. The darkness associated with that. The satanic oppression associated with that. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Wow. They embrace evil. They're unable to do good. They can't do the good. They don't want to do the good. And when they do good, it's for selfish motives. <laughs> it's not for the glory of the Lord and because of the Lord that they do good. It's for themselves and their own agenda that they do good. Look at me, they say. Whether they say that inwardly or outwardly. I'll read you this note. At this stage, sinful ways, excuse me, at this stage, the wicked is not merely floating downstream, but rather they invent more and more sinful ways to commit their evil deeds. This is a chilling contrast with the righteous of Psalm 1, who delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law do they meditate day and night. Do you see the wicked devise evil while they're in their bed at nighttime, but the righteous meditate on the law of God, on good things? These who walk an evil course are so abandoned to their evil, they call bondage freedom, truth error, 
Peace is turmoil and joy is misery to them. They've lost the ability to distinguish that which is right and that which is wrong. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, the prophet said. Welcome to America. This sort of reverse moral, this reversed moralism, calling evil good, good evil, calling peace turmoil and turmoil peace. Bondage is freedom and freedom is bondage. This is crazy, isn't it? That's exactly right. It's spiritual insanity. And it's all stemming from a transgressing heart and no fear of God before their eyes. Now then, let's talk about the good news. You can either have the fate of the wicked or you can have faith in the Lord. And the Lord is contrasting himself in Psalm 36 with the wicked. Let's look at it. This is very precious. Verse 5. Now remember, he just got done describing the wicked. But now verse 5, he's going to describe the Lord. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't say, in my light do I see light. He didn't say, in your light do you see light. He said, in God's light we see light. We're going to talk about that. Before I do that, I want to just sort of unpack some of what's being said here. There are four main attributes of God. There are four main attributes of God in verses 5 through 9. The first one is steadfast love. The second one is faithfulness. The third one is righteousness. And the fourth one is justice. Steadfast love. This is the word hesed. Remember we talked about hesed. Hesed is a relational term. It describes the commitment and the responsibilities one party has to another because of their relationship together. And it's best illustrated between the covenant and the marriage vows of a, of a husband and a wife. And that's the way that God views his relationship with humanity. God, God views his relationship with his people as a relationship between a husband and a wife. And because God has espoused us to himself, God acts toward us always in grace, mercy, goodness, and any other righteous adjective that you could prefix to the name of God. The sum total of all of God's goodness toward his people is summarized in the phrase steadfast love. You can either have the wickedness of the world or you can have God's steadfast love. The choice is yours. It was an easy choice for me. I can remember when I was confronted with that choice years ago. Do I want the world or do I want the Lord? Yeah, I stumbled, and I fell, 
to get where I'm at today, just like most of you probably have. Don't ever forget, though, that King David stumbled all the way to the throne. He did. And that's what you and I are like as well. Yes, there was twists and turns, and yes, there was pitfalls and plots that thickened in my life, but I got, where God, I got to where God wanted me to be. And He is continuing to sustain me. It's because of His steadfast love. Secondly, the faithfulness of God in verse 5. Basically, the faithfulness of God means that God always keeps His word, and that's contrasted with the deceitful and the wicked in the first four verses who speak lies and do all sorts of horrible things. Spurgeon said that God never fails, forgets, falters, or forfeits His word. God never fails, forgets, falters, or forfeits his word. When David said God's faithfulness extends to the heavens, look at what it said. It extends to the heavens, to the clouds. David means that there's no limit to God's faithfulness to what he has spoken to us in his word. In times of disappointment, go to God's word. In times of joy, go to God's word. In times of trouble, go to God's word. In times of pleasure, go to God's word. In times of torment, go to God's word. In life, in death, in pain, in joy, in suffering, go to God's word because God is faithful. That's what David is saying. Righteousness, verse 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. This speaks, so faithfulness speaks of God's word. Righteousness speaks of God's ways or, or God's works. God's deeds are always right. Remember the words of Abraham, Genesis 18 and verse 25. The judge of all the earth will do right. Fourthly, God's justice. God's justice is twofold. There's final judgment and present tense justice. Never forget that ultimately God has the final say-so in the current affairs of the human race. Never forget that God has the final say-so in the current affairs of the human race. Whatever happened on election day, God was in control. Do you really believe that? It's difficult though, isn't it? See, what's the striving? What's the struggle? It's the struggle of faith. It's the struggle of faith. Listen to this. I want to show you this. This is very precious. In these verses... In verse 6, he says, uh, in the second part of the verse, he said, Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Notice also, verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. There's something called special grace. There's something else called common grace. If you're a Christian and a member of the family of God, you have been given special grace. And special grace is for the saved, for the redeemed, for the born again. That's saving grace. That's special grace. But there's also something called common grace. And Jesus spoke something of this when he said that God sends the rain on the just 
and on the unjust. Think about it this way. Whatever people do with the knowledge of God, that's between them and the Lord. But the greatest thing that is the most, um, what's the word? Let me see how I have it written in my notes here. Repulsive. What makes the rejection of the light of God from the faithless and the wicked so repulsive is that from the very moment of their birth, God has been taking care of them. Think about the grace of God in God provisionally and providentially taking care of people who hate him. Think about the words of Christ in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not the big world in John 3.16 that Jesus has in mind. It's the bad world. It's the kind of world that Christ died for. He said light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than they love light because their deeds were evil. Now, in closing, that's all fine and dandy. There are at least four great blessings of knowing the Lord personally in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 36. Notice what he said. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. Abundance, delights, life, and light. That's the blessings that God gives those who are his children. The ninth verse is one of the most powerful verses in Psalm 36. Look at what he said, for with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. I want to close with this thought. Beware of the spirit of individualism. This great psalm contrasts the character of God with the character of the wicked. In this psalm, the wicked are those who do bad things, yes. But the wicked are also those who seek to live a self-ruled life rather than a God-ruled life. Individualism is best summarized as someone who thinks that they can determine truth based upon what seems right to me and someone who says, I call it like I see it. Remember the words of William Ernest Henley's poem entitled Invictus, quote, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, end quote. Psalm 36 sings a completely different melody than that of the song of individualism. It's not I call them like I see them in Psalm 36, but it's in your light do we see light. Let me illustrate it with the words of C.S. Lewis. He had these words inscribed on his memorial. Quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I and you, we are not the source of our own light. We don't individually get to decide what is truth and what is not truth. God decides what is truth and what is not truth.
Be very careful with the spirit of individualism. Fullness of life is never something that we generate in and of ourselves. We cannot manufacture it on our own. Mays sums it up beautifully when he says, quote, life as existence, as full and good living, as community, as restoration, life in every sense is the gift of the Lord. The source of life is with him. Wherever there is life, there is a receiving of that life from the source, end quote. Folks, beware of the spirit of individualism that says, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own destiny. I call it like I see it. He's a self-made man. Our identity, our sustenance, our light are derived from a person and his name is Christ. Christ.